Thank you, Rachel. Well, good evening, friends. Um, awesome to see y'all here. Um, nothing like a, a talk on human sexuality and followed by Mexican food. So there you go. Um, when I was asked to do this series, you know, it was, it was the human condition, uh, which we talked about last week, is, is actually quite, quite broad um, and impossible to cover in two 30-minute sessions together. So I sort of picked out two key topics, what we covered last week, the image of God, um, really being the foundational understanding of what it means to, to be human, especially in the context of, of the larger biblical narrative. And then as I was reading and thinking through, you know, how to use this second time, uh, really, I was pretty pragmatic about it. I was like, what would be the most useful um, to, to people in the church um, to talk about? And I landed on um, human sexuality as our topic this evening um, for a number of different reasons. But um, first and foremost, it really is the hot button topic in our culture right now. And it's a divisive topic even in the church. Um, and it also is a topic that we, uh, that we tend to avoid for all, for all kinds of reasons. And uh, I don't think that's a good thing. I, I think that this is a topic that we ought to normalize in Christian discourse, and not just normalize it in spaces like this, where we're coming to learn theology, where we're in a, the church setting, but I think normalize it in our homes as well. Uh, the other reason I was interested in, in this topic is I have a 14-year-old daughter, um, and, you know, in our, in our home, uh, the issues of, of puberty and growing up and relationships are all at the forefront of our dinner table conversations, and I imagine that might be true for, for some of you as, as well. And as a dad, I really have struggled to figure out how do I talk to my teenager about sex. Um, and I think so many of us grew up in, in places where we either, you know, if we said, well, what's your history personally? I won't ask you to share that um, in terms of people talking to you about sex and sexuality. Uh, I think common answers would be either A, no one really ever had that conversation in a, in a personal context. Maybe it was in, you know, a bio biology class in high school or something like that. Or it was a, a very perfunctory, one-time, check the box. We did the, you know, and even our culture, we talk about the sex talk, um, which I, I find disturbing, you know, that we would reduce something so critical um, to what it means to be a person to one conversation um, that we awkwardly have with, with our children. Um, but as a dad and as a pastor, I struggle with the same thing. Like, how do I, you know, we have that first conversation of the birds and the bees, and then what? Um, and I think there's a lot of what uh, to be had after that. So that's just kind of my own um, energy behind this talk is I don't find it um, difficult at all to talk about this. I mean, I think it's... Um, it's, it's a concept that's firmly rooted in the scriptures and, uh, and, and what it means to be a human, which um, I want to remind us is our central question in these two sessions is, is the research question, what does it really mean to, to be a human? Um, so we can go to our next slide. I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap for our, our time together this evening. First, I'm going to give a, a framework for our discussion, just a couple of things to kind of hang thoughts on as, as we go. I find that helpful as I'm studying things. Uh, then we're going to talk about the postmodern worldview. So I'm actually going to start with the view of culture. Uh, 
what, what is our predominant cultural view uh, on human sexuality? And we'll kind of take a dive in, into philosophical underpinnings of, um, of, of what the worldview is all about when it comes to sex. Second, we'll, we'll talk about a biblical uh, worldview, which in some ways is unfortunately framed as a response sometimes, um, but I actually think it's a, you know, the very idea of a worldview is it's our lens, it's our starting point, that we really ought to view that first and look at culture through that lens, but I'm nonetheless going to address it second. Um, finally, we're going to talk about implications, which you could also call ethics, um, which is how do we behave, uh, which I also think we tend to have discussions like this with that as a starting point, is, is how should we behave, but I really want to end there after we talk about um, our worldview. And then um, finally, any time we have left, if there's questions for, for discussion, we can certainly engage those as well. Uh, you can go to the next slide. So in terms of uh, a framework, um, I want to invite us to, to make a shift. Um, and I, I think our typical sort of approach to this topic is from a moralistic standpoint. Is it's a list of do's and don'ts that we, we kind of come at sex and sexuality from the perspective of law, um, rules, and regulations, which certainly there are those things, but I want to invite us to shift from moralism as a starting point um, to anthropology. Um, in other words, I want us to talk about and to think about um, sex and sexuality first from the perspective of what does it mean to actually be human, um, and then move to, therefore, because this is what it means to be human, this is how we should behave. Um, towards ourselves, certainly, but, but in this case, even more so toward um, one another. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a big shift. I actually think if we could really make that shift uh, with our kids and with um, other people in the community, um, that, that might make for an easier conversation, is that we're not, we're not starting with what you should or shouldn't do. We're, we're going to actually invite you to a higher level of what sexuality is, is all about. And again, our central research question in all of these things is, is, again, not what is right and what is wrong, but instead, what does it actually mean um, to be fully human? Next slide. All right. Um, I'm going to start with uh, a little bit of an abstraction. I want to talk about postmodern culture, and um, I want to start with this idea of what's called personhood theory. So personhood theory uh, is, is the philosophy that is, is really behind um, the, the abortion movement, the euthanasia um, movement, homosexuality, transgenderism, like all those things, all those be particular behaviors start with an underlying understanding of what it means to be a human being. And it's a dualistic worldview, meaning that it's split. Um, and, and really for the history of, of Western civilization, this was not true. Uh, we, we thought in terms of, of really a biblical framework that a person is created in the image of God uh, with inherent value and seen as an in integrated being, um, body, soul, and, 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 and spirit as one thing. And then, and we'll talk about why this happened historically later, but the important thing is where we've gotten is this split view where we split the idea of body as an expendable biological organism. Um, 
that can be disposed of um, that really has no inherent value or worth. And we separate that uh, from the top floor, if that's the bottom floor, the top floor, this idea of personhood being separated from the body and the person has moral and, and legal standing, but separate from, from the body. Um, to understand this, uh, you, you, can, you can actually look at uh, the way that people argue for abortion. Um, is that we, we say, you know, people that uh, are in support of, of abortion would, can't argue the biology of a fetus. They say, well, a fetus is a biological organism. It's cells, it looks like a human being. And so how do you rationalize something that has all the DNA, all the genetics, I'm gonna say all the science of what it means to be human, and yet we can justify morally killing this human? How do we get there? Well, this is how we get there, is, is that you separate the idea, this is a body, but the body doesn't have value. And the body doesn't have value because it's not yet a person. And that we've grown like accustomed to that way of, of thinking in our culture. Um, but it's actually a very new idea uh, that, that's come about fairly recently. And so when we talk about sex and sexuality in culture, this is something I want you to keep in the back of your mind is this paradigm is, is what's at play in the culture. Because the culture is saying you know, there's a body that's disconnected from a person. And so the sex act, right, is, is not this integrated behavior. It's this idea that there's a body and then there's a person and we can talk about them as separated things. And this is how we get to homosexuality. This is how we get to transgenderism. And this is how we justify um, any demeaning activity um, towards humans is through personhood theory. Um, you can go to the next slide a subset of, of this framework that I want to introduce to you is, again, bottom floor, top floor, dualistic view of, of what it means to be a, a person is that you have physical, um, and so in other words, a person can have a sexual relationship, and then that can be separated from what is personal or a mental and a, a emotional relationship. And so there's all kinds of, you know, if you, if you read, I, I don't read these magazines, but Cosmo <laughs> or um, Seventeen magazine, there's a lot of research that's looked at publications like that. And, you know, what they're actually teaching to our young people is that, you know, actually inviting young adults and, and teenagers to disconnect uh, their bodies from their mental and emotional, um, relational qualities. And so, you know, you, you hear things like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what I do to my body, um, or it's my body, I can, choose, I can choose it, right? And so, underneath this is this idea is, is that we don't get um, our, our personhood from our body in this construct. Um, the body is something um, that you do things to, that you get your identity and your personhood externally from your body, and then, and then you do things to your body to, to match what your identity or your personhood is. So it's this split. And in some ways, I think this is like the most simple way to understand our culture. And it's so complicated. Like if you, if you watch television, if you read, you know, and, and it gets really complicated. I don't know about you guys, but I have, I have friends who 
to argue things from this perspective, and I have smart friends that argue things from, from this perspective, and it gets really confusing, um, and it can seem like they're right because they start introducing things like, well, we should love people, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, but what we never talk about is, is, is this question, but what does it mean to be a human being? Um, and that actually, I disagree with this as a Christian. This is not a biblical idea of, of being a human. This is a very destructive um, way of thinking about humanity. Next slide. So the question is, from a cultural perspective, where does this personhood theory originate? And, um, you know, again, this is a topic we could spend hours and hours and hours on. But I want to um, just kind of go high level, show you the trajectory um, historically of, of thinking is that, you know, we, we moved from modernism. So modernism um, was tied to materialism, which just said the only things that are real are things that we can touch and feel. Um, things like spirit and soul, um, those aren't real things, or at least they're not the most real things. And so what came out of that is things like the Industrial Revolution. And if you think about, you know, what did the Industrial Revolution do to um, our ideas about what it means to be human? Um, humans went from beings who have intrinsic value to cogs in a machine, is that we began to talk about human beings as being machinery. Um, and that they're without innate purpose, only what you could use human beings to accomplish. And so, you know, that line of thinking that sure looked good on the outside, that productivity went up, civilization started advancing, and all these good things. Um, but actually, when you start to play out what that means to its full extent, it's, it's, it's extremely destructive. Um, the last thing was our Darwinianism. Um, so, so Darwin um, basically said, you know, there's, there's not um, purpose. There's not created, there's nothing from the outside that's um, providing value to the creation. This is just really an accident. And up until that point, Everything in creation was seen to have a creator and to have a purpose. So we get to this personhood theory, just to summarize really quickly, where our idea of what it means to be human is split between body and personhood. And we talk about people as, as these two separate categories. And we get there by way of all these ways of thinking, all the way from modernism, uh, materialism, Darwini Darwinianism. Um, and so here's this quote, and I'm going to share with you this book by Nancy Piercy at the end. Um, she, uh, the economist, um, did a, a write-up on her and said she's the uh, pre a preeminent uh, evangelical Protestant thinker of our time. Um, and her, her book is a stunning work um, on sex and sexuality, and so I'm going to reference it quite a bit tonight. Uh, but she says, the next step in the logic is crucial if nature does not reveal God's will, which is what Darwin said, that you can't look at nature and find God. It do, that doesn't uh, equate, according to Darwin. So if nature does not reveal God's will, then it is a morally neutral realm where humans may impose their will. Um, so we can just, nature and the things that we touch and see, and even people, are, are things that we can just impose our will upon. Okay. Um, so how does all this relate to sex and sexuality in the culture? I'm just, I'm going to read some excerpts because um, Nancy Piercy says it uh, in such an amazing way. Uh, she says this, and she talks about um, 
these larger constructs. She talks about uh, euthanasia and abortion, and then finally she gets to sexuality, and she says, what about sexuality? Surprisingly, the secular view on sexuality exhibits the same body-person dualism in the two-story worldview. So that was the diagram that I showed you. If the body is separate from the person, as we saw in abortion and euthanasia, then what you do with your body sexually need not have any connection to who you are as a whole person. Let me repeat that. Um, Then what you do with your body sexually need not have any connection to who you are as a whole person. Sex can be purely physical, separate from love. Our sexualized culture actually encourages people to keep the two separate. Seventeen magazine warns teen girls to keep your hearts under wraps or boys may find you boring and clingy. Cosmo advises women that the way uh, to wow a man after sex is to ask for a ride home. In other words, make it clear that you have no intention of hanging around or hoping for a relationship. Next slide. These examples uh, were collected by Wendy uh, Shalit in her book, Girls Gone Mild. On her website, Shalit posts letters from her readers, some of them heart, uh, heart-rending. The day I checked the site, there was a letter from a 16-year-old Amanda lamenting that in a typical high school, the more detached you can be from your sexuality, the cooler you are. She added that even adults, teachers, books, magazines, parents often urge teens to adopt a no-big-deal attitude toward sexuality. So this is the world that, that we live in. This is the message of, of our culture, um, is that human beings have no in, inherent worth, and therefore you can do whatever you want to your own body because your body doesn't actually inform anything about who you are. Um, your body doesn't tell you um, anything that's uh, substantial in other words, you can do anything you want to your body. Um, and, of course, we know this isn't true. This is extremely destructive. And um, for me, like, this understanding of the split between body and person was really, really helpful. Because if you just can't keep that in your mind as you're hearing arguments from our culture about sex and sexuality, we'll get to homosexuality later, but, you know, those arguments that I can just be whatever I want that there's no construct of gender. Um, Where does all that come from? How do we rationalize that? Well, that's because we do this split. Um, And the crazy thing is that it's actually an extremely low view of the body, which is kind of funny if if you think about it. I think culture tries to say, like, no, it's the Christians that, like, have the low regard for the world. We don't, you know, we're not for the environment. Um, We actually have a low regard for for, for women because, you know, like, you know, we, we say that she can't do, you know, people can't do whatever they want to do their, to their bodies. But actually, the inverse is true, is that this worldview um, is extremely destructive to the, to the body and has a low regard um, for humanity as, as a whole. And I think that's where, just as a side note, how we get to um, when, when we're having conversations about sex and sexuality and those can get intense in our culture with our neighbors and things like that. And this idea comes about that, you know, we're not being loving because, you know, because we're trying to impose things and imp- impose our worldview on people um, is, is that, you know, the very opposite is true. Like the most unloving thing to, to say to someone is that your body doesn't matter. Um, 
and that it doesn't, and that actually you're just adrift in the world, and that you have to figure it all out yourself, and that the only thing you're left with is your thoughts and your emotions and your desires. Can you imagine saying to your child, like, you know, it's, there's nothing set for you. It's whatever you choose. Only your thoughts, emotions, and will matter. Um, I mean, how incredibly unkind is that? All right. Um, you can go to the next slide. We're going to move to, so that's a big kind of um, gloss over um, understanding of how the culture views human sexuality. Um, I want to now move to talking about uh, what is the biblical view of human sexuality. And so there's, there's a lot we can say here. Again, remember last week we talked about this idea that in theology we want to look for threads that we can draw all the way through the story. So things that, you know, we often get accused as Christians of taking specific verses and like, you know, well, we're cherry picking an idea out of a verse. And so how substantial is that? But what I want to show you tonight, and if, if you don't get anything else out of this, this time, I hope you get this, is that the, the, the reasons um, for uh, a biblical worldview of human sexuality are so strong and have nothing to do with one verse here and one verse there. For n- number one, it's a biblical theology all the way through the story. It's a cohesive understanding through thousands of years and intellectually in a coherent, cogent way. Um, the meaning of what it means to be human, that's, not, that's number one. Um, and then um, the, the second idea is that it, it's, it's tele- teleological in nature. In other words, we can look at the creation. Even if you didn't have the Bible, what you see in nature just makes sense. Um, and that the Christian worldview of sex and sexuality matches what we fundamentally, logically see in the world. Um, I want to talk about four, four aspects of a biblical worldview of human sexuality. Number one, we talked about last week that we are created in God's image. So remember our text in Genesis chapter, chapter 1, really chapters 1 and 2, um, that, that God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. So this idea that there was um, an, an intelligent designer um, who made a man in his image, and then remember at the end, he called it very good, um, which is a moral claim. So not only was it intentional and intelligent, but it was also, um, he was giving value in the very creation. So we're created in God's image, and our view of human sexuality has to start from that place. Secondly, that we are gendered, um, and that that's not a, that's not up for grabs, that we were created as male, and we were created as male and female, um, and that that is a fact, um, that we are a, a reproducing um, species, that, and that's scientific, that we are made to procreate, that we are made to reproduce ourselves, um, and that our, the, the, the physicality of our bodies um, speaks to that purpose um, that, that we're made with, and so you know, that's another reason I think, like, we should talk about these things, because it's a huge part of what it means to be a human being, is that you were not only made in God's image, but you're made for a significant purpose that you actually can help to create life, which is how crazy is that, but we create life not just through the split idea of a human being that the world tells us, but we, we, we actually uh, are able to recreate life because of our physicality, because we're male and we're female, 
and that that has certain implications and that we're made for purpose. Um, which leads me to number three, we are created with great intention. Um, and so again, the world would say, you're, you know, it's up for grabs, you can be whatever you want to be, um, but not, that's not what the scriptures tell us, that we're created with intention. And then finally, we are created as integrated beings. Um, we are embodied souls, and so you, you really can't talk about a human being in any other way, except that you, you have a body, you have a mind, you have a soul, you have a spirit, and all those things are integrated in, into um, one um, cohesive whole. Next slide. This idea of being built for a purpose is core to our understanding of sexuality um, from a biblical perspective. So Romans 1, 19 through 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world uh, in the things that have been made. So even Paul, kind of towards the end of the story, says, hey, like, um, it's plain. It's plain. And again, our culture says, it's not plain. It's whatever you make it. Um, it's whatever you decide it is. But the scriptures say, no, the, the whole of creation is plain. And um, that, that God is revealing um, things about himself through the scriptures, yes, but also through nature as well. Number two, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So there's a creation that is made by a creator and that, is, that it is handiwork and that it's made for purpose. Next slide. Okay, um, I want to talk about um, further this idea of how, how, how things are intentionally physically made and what that means um, for our understanding of sexuality. So again, Nancy Piercy says this, the implication is that the physical structure of our bodies reveals clues to our personal identity. The way our bodies function provide rational grounds for our moral decisions that's why, as we will see, a Christian ethic always takes into account the facts of biology, whether addressing abortion, the scientific facts about when life begins, or sexuality, the facts about sexual differentiation and reproduction. A Christian ethic re respects the te uh, teleology of nature and the body. And um, by teleolo teleology just means that, um, that, that we're made with purpose that when you look at things, that you can see that it's made, made for a purpose. And so when you look at man and you look at woman and you look at them together, you say, well, these things are made to go together, okay? Um, and, and that so what's, what a biblical worldview says is that, um, and I'm getting, jumping a little ahead to like gender dysphoria where people would say, I'm confused, I don't feel like I'm a man, Okay, but your biology, you know, in my case, my biology would say, I, I am a man. Um, and so a Christian worldview would say that, that my body, because it's created by God and it's created by purpose, ought to inform my thinking, not the other way around. And I think that's a major point. Instead, the world says, no, you're thinking, if, I, if I'm confused here, then that ought to inform my body and I could change my body to match because this is what's really real, it's what's in my head or in my heart. Um, but a Christian worldview says, no, your, your physical body ought to inform um, how you think about yourself and how you think about sexuality. Um, let's see, which slide are we on? You can go to the next slide. 
Um, another quote by Piercy, in the biblical worldview, sexuality is integrated into the total person. The most complete and intimate physical union is meant to express the most complete and intimate personal union of marriage. Biblical morality is teleological. The purpose of sex is to express uh, the one flesh covenant bond of marriage. And I just want to talk briefly. So we've talked about what it means to be male, what it means to be female, okay, how sexuality, our sexuality is informed um, by our creator, by the purpose, by the design, and all those things. Um, let's just talk for a second about the actual sex act. Um, what, does, what does the culture say a sex act is for? Um, well, it says it's for pleasure, number one. Um, it says it's for physiological uh, satisfaction or, um, or release, um, number two. Um, but a biblical worldview says that actually the sex act is much more than that. It's actually an act of a covenant bond meant for the confines of marriage because it's expressing uh, the, the perfect purpose of our design. So our design is male and female to come together. Um, and, it's, and it's the ultimate expression of, of, that, of that purpose in um, the confines of, of marriage. And the fruit of that is actually life, which is, which is incredible, um, that, that idea. And so what I want to convey about all of that is just this idea that um, s- sex and sexuality is, is meant for purpose, um, which is not what the world says about those things a- at all, um, and that that purpose actually informs who we are as people. Um, okay, next slide. Oops, there's my timer, um, but I'm just going gonna, gonna to finish up. Um, I want to talk about what, what then should our Christian response be. So we've talked about, you know, a, a worldview that splits humanity, and then because it split humanity, views sex and sexuality um, as just a perfunctory act um, that has no, no moral meaning. Um, it, you know, it's neither good or bad. It's just this act that's the same as driving a car or something like that. And so, therefore, it doesn't really matter. Um, and then the Christian idea is that you're made for a purpose, you're made in God's image, that um, the sex act has huge meaning and significance because of God's design for it. Um, so we're at odds with our neighbors, and I originally entitled this, this part of the talk, like, um, having a conversation in your pagan neighborhood, um, because your neighbors, many of them, even a lot of people who might proclaim to be Christians would not, would not share this Christian worldview um, would argue against it. So how then should we respond um, in conversations um, about sex and sexuality? So I want to propose three, three things. Number one, love. Um, is that we have to, you know, and, and actually our talk on the human condition ought to lead us to this conclusion as well. Because a, a moral response, if what is true is people, so if Rachel, if I believe she's made in God's image, um, and that he breathed his life into her, and that her life is meant to go on forever, and that she's meant to be a reflection of his glory, then how ought I treat Rachel? Um, ought to treat her with great um, regard and respect um, and honor and dignity um, because, because of all those things. Um, and so the same should be true for our neighbors. And th- 
that, that should be an innate response. In other words, it's, it's not depending on whether people agree with us. It's actually not, de doesn't depend on their behavior toward us. Um, that's, that's what leads us to the ethic of Jesus where he says, you know, love your enemy. Well, how does that make any sense? Well, it, it's not pragmatic because you might get killed. You might lose your life by doing that. But it makes sense because of everything that we're saying. Um, is it because if we believe humans have inherent worth, then the only proper response is love. So I put that first and foremost and like triple underline it when we're having conversations with our kids, with neighbors, with those who disagree with us on this. We have to have that posture of, um, of love because they have inherent dignity. Um, the second thing I want to invite us to have a conversation about is what I'm calling healing the alienation. Um, so when we are talking to people in the world um, who have a postmodern, post-Christian view of, of themselves and, and of sex and sexuality, um, the way they're actually thinking about themselves is, um, is, is actually violent because they're viewing themselves as split, um, is that their, their body is split from their mind, from their emotions, from what they desire. And in that way, um, they're actually cannot help but be at odds with themselves. Um, and so you, you imagine there's a war raging inside of a person whose body doesn't match up with their thoughts and their emotions and things like that. And so their body is alienated from the, the rest of their being. And so I think a Christian response is an invitation to resurrection life and healing. Um, and I think an, a simple explanation is we're made to be whole. Um, we're made to be, remember the first slide I presented last time was this idea of being fully present, fully alive. Um, and so we should invite our neighbors to that idea that they're not split human beings, that actually their bodies do tell them who they are and that's a glorious thing. And that we should seek to heal that alienation um, between the body and, and the person and reject that whole um, construct. Um, and the third thing I think just want to invite us to think about is actually living as integrated humans, because I think many of us would hear this presentation and say, well, Gabe, like, I don't believe, I don't believe that I'm a split person. I don't believe in abortion. I don't believe body and person is, um, can, can be split. But you remember the question I started off last time with um, as um, a question about, you know, I am my body. And then we talked about how we feel about our bodies. And I think we all, a lot of us have a negative idea about our physical bodies and our physical nature. Um, and so I want to invite you to this idea that living as an integrated human is to regard your body, um, which includes your sex and, and sexuality, um, with great dignity and, and honor, and that you were made for a purpose and that you should live out that purpose as such, um, which is, you know, what Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself has an implication, right? That first, you, you, you have to actually love yourself. Um, you have to regard yourself. You have to regard your own dignity, that you were made um, for a purpose and created in his image. Um, I, I won't go, you can go to the next slide. I won't, there was, I was going to, if we had time, go into different kind of cultural specific things, one of them being probably the most predominant homosexuality. I won't go into that. I think I've alluded um, to, to some of these ideas, but I just would conclude that by saying um, that um, homosexuality, homosexuality, like that way of, 
of a person thinking about um, their sexuality is profoundly disrespectful um, to their own body. And so that's there. Go back to the previous slide of um, love, love your neighbor um, and live as a whole person. And you can go to the final slide. Um, this is the book that I would recommend if anything I've said um, was interesting to you at all. Um, Nancy Piercy is um, uh, 100x um, smarter than I am. And um, this is a great read. And she talks about all, all of these things in, from, a, from an evangelical um, perspective. And um, I found her work intriguing. And she makes this great, you know, she's very smart in terms of laying out the philosophies, but she's also a great storyteller as well. Um, so there you go.